Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. pick up in Hebrews chapter 6, where we left off last week, uh, which is at verse 9. So I'll let you get there. Last week, we just finished up the beginning, the chapter 5 and the beginning of 6 is a reprimand for all the dull-eared, milk-drinking baby faithers that are in the world. Not happy chapters if you're an immature believer, but he's not writing to immature believers. He's writing to Jewish converts that know the faith well. And they know the faith, the rooting of the faith well. And the, the idea of being an immature believer is due to not growing up, never getting past the ABCs of the faith, the Jesus loves me part of the faith. And, you're, and that's not bad. Like, it's good to know the ABCs. We want all of our kids to know the ABCs before they learn to read. But we hope that at some point they're able to teach other people the ABCs. So the downside of being immature, again, this is the beginning of chapter 6, is that they're unskilled in handling the word of God. They don't know how to share the word of God with other people. So this is all an aside from who Jesus is. Chapters 1 through 5 of Hebrews is all about who is Jesus and what does he mean to Jewish people. Essentially, the Jewish faith has been fulfilled, and it's time to move on to a Christian faith. So they're writing that, and in verse, chapter 5, verse 12, it says, You ought to be teachers. You're the Jewish people. You should be helping teach the Gentiles what this is all about. So you know the faith, you know the background. Chapter 6, verse 1, they're moving on from the elementary ideas, for, and then they go on to, for instance, let's talk about your assurance of hope and salvation, right? Which is a question that divides the Armenians from the Calvinists, from the open theists. Like, this is a question that splits the church down the middle. Can you be assured of your salvation or can't you? Do you have free will or don't you? But that's the example subject that the writers are using to get us past the ABCs. Let's talk about these thick, rich things, because when you share your faith, this is the stuff you run into with other people. So you have to know how to handle it, which means we wrestle with it. And I got to tell you, like for us, the last two weeks, going through chapter 5 and the beginning of 6, we've been wrestling with it. This is the kind of question mature believers can't get their brain off of. Wait, you said this last week, and then how does this fit with that? And as you go through your life, this is the meaty stuff that we live our life on. So then you get to chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. It says the, 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 the verses that people struggle with. It's impossible if you fall away from Christianity back into Judaism to think that you're going to go to heaven that way. It, you can't be renewed to repentance when you're still doing Judaism. It's impossible because Judaism doesn't work anymore because all of it's been fulfilled in Christ. So God has moved on. So Acts 4.12 says, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven amongst which men, uh, given among men by which we must be saved. The name Jesus was given among humanity. When that name was provided to humanity, that's the only way to heaven. That's it, because that's God himself coming down to earth. He sent his prophets. He sent kings. He sent people beforehand. But when he comes himself, that's the end of it. So then you get to chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. Again, there's a quick summary at the beginning of the chapter. 
useful fruit from cultivated ground is how you tell a mature believer. Thorns and briars come from baby faithers. Baby faithers constantly are getting into it with people. They're constantly bickering. They're arguing about silly things, and we had a bunch of examples of kind of what that looks like. Again, that was the tough stuff. Then you get to verse 9, and the whole chapter gets much more pleasant. It says, but. So instead of the baby faith stuff, now we're going to switch on the word but. But beloved. He's not writing to people that he's angry with. He's writing to people that he was reprimanding. <laughs> like a father reprimands their children or a mother reprimands their children. So it says, but beloved, we're confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. So the people are reading this note from Christ followers that are tempted to go back to Judaism. And the writers are saying, like, look, we think better of you. We don't think you're baby faithers. We think you're better than that. So that reprimand is in order for his beloved uh, fellow Christians to get on, you know, get on the track of what's going on. So he's, he's confident that the writers aren't in the boat that we just got done talking about over the last two weeks. So his, his readers are actually interested in the things of Christ. I hope we are too. They're confident. That's a great argument that Hebrews is written by a team because it says we are confident and we speak in this manner. So the debate over who wrote Hebrews, I'm going to stick with my team effort because they're using a plural uh, pronoun there. Just saying, I think it's... Paul and Luke hanging out with John, a little bit of Matthew. We've seen some signs of Mark. I think they're all working together to write this. And they're writing it to deal with the church of Jerusalem that's mostly Jews that have converted, but they're tempted to go back to temple because it's the way they've always done it. So they're confident in it. They're confident in better things. Being an immature believer isn't worthy of damnation. Being an immature believer means you don't get the blessings of being a mature believer. Like, there's a lot to the Christian faith. If you're not enjoying that part of the Christian faith, it's probably because you're a baby faither. So this idea that there's better things than just getting saved or having the hope of salvation, there's much better stuff in the Christian faith that comes right now. And it has to do with who we are and how we operate. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, God did not appoint us to wrath, but obtained salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're appointed for things, things that accompany salvation. So again, I'm going to come back to that point. I don't think we're talking about salvation here. We're talking about the rest of God from chapter 4. That when you get saved, when you, when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, there's a rest that should happen, a freedom from sin. There's a lot of benefits that happen there. And they accompany just that idea of being saved. So relax, we're not talking about the people that we were talking about last week, but this is a super meaty topic, right? Remember they went from ABCs to a meaty topic and that whole idea of our, do we have a hope of salvation? That's a super huge topic. So we're going to come back today. Though we speak in this manner, they understand that's a harsh manner to talk to people because it was kind of a reprimand the last couple weeks. Verse 10 then says, For, because of all this, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you've shown towards his name in that you've ministered to the saints, and you do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is the golden ticket. So, for God is not unjust. We can't see who will be saved and who will be saved, which was the topic we just got done with, but we do know that God's just in salvation. 
If you honestly are trying to follow the Lord, honestly, God's going to save you. It's just God knows your heart and he knows who you are. So that question of, do I have assurance of hope? Do, can I hope that I'm going to get saved at the end? The answer to that question is, yeah, you sure can, because you're asking that question. People that don't care about that question are the ones that should really worry. So this alone, God is not unjust, is an amazing assurance of hope. How do I know I'm going to be saved? Because God's not unjust. I also would add, but this is not in Hebrews, I would just add God's not stupid either. Like he knows who you are, he knows your heart. But my heart's full of sin, I make mistakes. The, they're going to give more reasons here that are going to cover that too. God's not unjust to forget. We forget things all the time. We get tired, we get worn out, we spend a whole day moving, and then we forget things like printing off our sermon notes. But God never forgets. He's like a supernatural elephant. He doesn't forget things like our work and labor and love. We're not saved by our work and labor and love, but God doesn't forget those things either, and he's just to remember them. When we do things for the body, and again, it says that you've ministered to the saints, there is something different about just open ministry to the masses, like Jesus healed people in the masses, but he also took care of his disciples, and he made water out of wine at a wedding. Like there's something to taking care of the body too. Like we take care of each other. We help each other. Um, and, and it's a huge blessing when that happens. You know, we had a mini move yesterday and Dan was there to help us out and Danny was there to help us out. And it was such a blessing to just have a couple extra hands around and people to talk to. And, and then I can't get too snappy because there's company around. And so the kids appreciate that. So that work and labor of love is something that's outward. And then ministering, ministering to the saints is likely something that happens inside the church. And God sees both of those things. When you do nice things that nobody notices, God knows it, notices it. So the blessing, blessing the believers in the body, it actually is ministry. And I think sometimes we forget that. We think ministry is always stuff we do outside the church. But the Bible treats ministry inside the church as good too. Frankly, I think it's good training ground because when you minister to people inside the church, it's a lot less intimidating than ministering to people outside the church. Um, and the people inside the church will often like appreciate it and know what you're doing. So blessing the bodies, in, blessing the bodies, the believers in the body actually is ministry. Work, labor, it's all shown. And God remembers how you blessed the body and what you did and how you helped. Verse 11 says, and we desire. This is what they actually want. They don't want sluggishness, but they do want diligence and they want imitation. So let's, I'll talk about both of those. Diligence to the full assurance of hope. So they answer the question themselves. It's not about salvation, it's about hope. Do I have assurance of hope? Can I hope that I'll be saved at the end of things? Do I have any kind of assurance in that? Today's vernacular in the Christian church, we often say the assurance of salvation. And I wonder sometimes if that's, if that's true to what the Bible says, at least in this passage. They, they talk about the hope of salvation. Because we get saved when we go before the throne and we don't get punished for our sins. So how can I assure other people if I'm not assured myself? If I don't know I'm going to heaven, how can I possibly talk to people about going to heaven? So that idea of being diligent until the end, we keep at the ministry. And as we keep ministering to people, we have full assurance in that. Do not become sluggish is the opposite of diligence. Like a slug. Literally, when you look it up, the definition is like a slug. To be sluggish is to move slowly with a lot of slime. And that's, so we can pick up on that idea of are we diligent or are we gaining, like are we just sitting there kind of moving extremely slow? And if you have that question about yourself, are you diligent in ministering to the saints or are you busy taking care of yourself? 
I mean, that's an easy dividing line as to where your hope should lie. Are you putting your hope in yourself, in your job, in your retirement fund, or are you putting your hope in the, in the work that you're doing in the ministry? And the, the Bible, I think, is pretty clear on that line. So you can deal with that yourself, or we can talk about it over lunch. Um, and then the second one is imitation. If you don't know how to do Jesus stuff, then you imitate people that do. And the imitation thing's really interesting. You find a fruit-filled believer, and you simply do what they do. Or when I was a teenager, like I ran into the Joses. Jim Jose was the youth leader at the Little Baptist Church in town. I just hung around with him as much time as I possibly could. Like I would, it was a small town, so literally it'd be a Saturday and he'd be out working on his car and I'd come trucking along on my BMX Schwinn bike with red pads and I would just put out my kickstand and I would just hang out with him while I was working on stuff. As much time as I could be around him, I could imitate him and I could learn to be more like him because I wasn't seeing that behavior necessarily in my day-to-day -day life, so I had to go find and imitate people that knew how to live that way. So we imitate people, and that's okay. Uh, plagiarism is only bad in the real world, but in the Christian world, we plagiarize each other's behavior all the time. We learn to talk the same. I don't know if you've noticed, when you go into different church communities, they talk slightly different. There's a little bit different Christianese in every church community because they're studying the Bible together. They start to talk like they're studying the Bible. And that's a super healthy thing in a church for that to happen. It's not healthy when the vernacular gets in the way of newcomers coming into the church because they don't speak the language. And that's human behavior in, in social groups tends to happen. So we imitate people. I used to imitate not just Jim, but I imitated my pastors all the time. I imitate my wife. That sounds kind of weird. But frankly, she's usually ahead of the game on stuff for me. Like she sees things that I don't and I just watch how she reacts to situations and I'm still learn learning from her 30 years later on how to handle stuff and how to deal with people, how to raise kids. I, I try to imitate her all the time, but everyone knows that the kids love her more than me. That said, imitation's a good thing in the church. It's how we get better and how we change. If we try to do it ourselves, it doesn't work. So frankly, everybody loves Steph better than me, but that's okay because she's loved, I love her better than me. So I love meeting mature believers. It's why we go to conferences sometimes, why we go to some of those events, because you just meet people, and they're seeking the kingdom first, and I'm seeking the kingdom first, and that's how I figure out how to do that, is that I learn from others. There's three ways, th three things that they wish then. Diligence, not sluggishness, and imitation. So those are pretty solid grounds on which we can start to get it. So when we do that, we, who do we imitate? They answer that question too. Those who, dot, 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 faith and patience. So how do you identify the people to imitate? You imitate the people that have unmovable faith and they have patience. And I think the two go together. Like faith without patience doesn't last very long. And patience without faith uh, is misdirected. So faith and patience are kind of fellows in this journey, so to speak. So with the faith, we see what they... It's what you see, and then you believe, and then you do. Faith, I, I think the world's painted faith is just like to be have faith in like these airy things that we can't prove. And that's not the case at all. Faith is something that's been proved over and over and over again, so you believe in reuse of a concept because it's worked for so long. That's faith. Faith is honestly the, the spiritual version of sitting on a chair. It is not silly to sit on a chair when I've seen it hold up over and over and over again. Is there a point where the chair might break? Sure. Is there a point where God might break? Absolutely not. Because God's eternal and God's been holding up for a long time. 
So I follow in faith, not because I, I know the chair will hold me next time, but because I have great experience and every reason to believe the chair will hold me up, except for those of you sitting on the floor. <laughs> so I believe the floor will hold you up too. And I, that's a faith, but it's not the kind of faith the world talks about. It's a rock-solid faith. So you look for people that kind of have that. They know God will hold them up because God has held them up in the past. And they can tell you those stories because they've, they've been sustained by a God that takes care of them every step of the way. And those stories are what we tell over lunch, right? That's why we eat together because we can share some of those stories. The patience thing there is interesting. We're patient because we wait on God to do the work for us. So if we're living by faith, it takes patience. We pray for it, and then we wait for it to happen. And some people like keep praying for it over and over and over again because the Bible says to pray without ceasing. Like God hears us when we pray. So we just keep praying all the time. Um, but to do those things that faith and patience you know, has to go together. I, again, if, if I have patience, I can wait to win the lottery forever, but maybe that's not the right place to put my faith. But when I wait upon the Lord, he renews my strength. In fact, gives me everything I need to do to have that, that, that patience that goes with it. Mature and unafraid believers has done what God's told them to do, and they're going to do it again. They're able to teach the gospel, and they're able to do it with fruit. I think that's really interesting. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Paul writes that because he has faith through patience. And he's writing it from a jail cell. Why is also in the verse 12, to inherit the promises. The whole reason we do this, diligence and patience and faith and imitation, is because we want to inherit the promises. God's made promises to us. What, you know, what's interesting here is in the Greek, that inherit is in the present tense. He's not talking about the kingdom come. He's not talking about after salvation. He's talking about right here and now, there are blessings that God has promised to Christians that we want. We want them badly. I love seeing God do wonders and works and signs. Like, that's more entertaining to me than any show I see on Hulu. Like, I want to see that happen again, so I invest in the work of the ministry because I want to see that. So, again, these promises have already been mentioned in the book of Hebrews. Just a real quick flash, and in your Bibles you can do this with a page flip. Chapter 3, verse 6. I'm not hearing the page flip. Chapter 3, verse 6. One of these promises is the blessing of hope. Then you go to chapter 4, verse 3, for which we've believed and we do enter into a rest. We get hope. We get rest. Like we can just be at peace. Chapter 4, verse 12. We got new eyes to see and new ears to hear the word of God. It's quick and powerful. That's interesting. Like we can read the word of God better once we get our life dedicated to Jesus. That's that's a gift. Chapter 4, verse 16, we get mercy. We find grace in the help of time and need. We can get into trouble and God bails us out. And that's not stupid trouble like you spent all your money trouble. But even in those situations, if you turn to God, you get mercy and he can help you out in times of trouble, especially when you're doing the ministry. When you're out there and, and you're preaching God's word, missionaries tell those stories all the time where they get in trouble because they're preaching God's word, not just for foolish reasons but doing the ministry. Then in chapter 6, verse 8, verse 4, you get enlightened to taste the heavenly gift and you become partakers of the Holy Spirit. So that list so far in Hebrews is hope, rest, the word of God, mercy, grace, 
enlightenment, tasting the heavenly gift, and partaking the Holy Spirit, all before we die. Like those things should be happening in our life now. That's the reason we want to be mature, are those reasons. So again, chapter 5 was kind of an aside in this book. And we come back to this theme of like, we want more for the Hebrews than what they're getting by going back to Judaism. There's so much more in the Christian belief. So we get to God's infallible purpose here in Christ. He was doing something when he came as himself to do something. Verse 13, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could not swear by one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. This is Genesis 22 he's referencing. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. So Abraham's the example of somebody who got the promise because he had faith by patience, or faith in patience. So Abraham's an interesting character. Um, He's talking to Jewish people about a Jewish tradition, and I like that on an evangelical side. He's meeting them where they're at. And Moses is the big character for the Jewish people, but Abraham's like even bigger, right? So Abraham, they just don't have as much detail around Abraham, where Moses wrote entire books of the law. So he references or goes back to Abraham uh, and calling them away from Judaism, he references a Jewish character in the Old Testament. It's an example of faithfulness in light of God's promises. So I want to take some time and go back through this because if I want to imitate somebody like Abraham, I want to know how he lived his life. What were the promises that were made to him? How How faithful was he? And if I know that, as the writer knows the readers are knowing that about this example, again, he's referencing Genesis 22. Go ahead and start turning your Bibles. It's easy to find Genesis. It's at the beginning. Chapter 12. If you go before that, you're, you're not in the Bible anymore. So this is what the Jews would call the Abrahamic covenant. They wouldn't learn this from when they were five years old. So this reference that the writer of Hebrews is making is is bringing to mind everything about the Abrahamic covenant. So I just want to go through real quick. We're going to blast through Genesis and know that covenant so that we know what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Get out of your country, from your family and your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you and I'll make your name great. You shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in, in, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is quite a promise. Abraham's in the land of Ur at this point in time. He's roughly 70 years old when God says this to him. So we haven't hit 70 yet. Um, he has an amount of time that goes past. So if God said something like that to me, I would think I would get up and move right away. But it doesn't happen right away. Genesis 12, 4, five years of patience go by. And then Abraham's 75 years old, which means he's not perfect. He doesn't obey God right off the bat. He screws up. He backslides. He sins. He makes mistakes. However you want to read that, five years before he packs up and leaves. God's command doesn't say to bring a lot with him. It doesn't say to wait on his dad. Both of those things waylay Abraham. Then you go to Genesis 15, verse 1. We'll skip forward. Again, God makes a promise. Abraham doesn't do anything about it. Then he finally takes off. Abraham 15, or Genesis 15, 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, don't be afraid, Abraham. I'm your shield, your exceedingly great reward. 
Once Abraham obeys, God responds to him. He gets out there. He's in a time of need. Now he meets God because he's doing the work that God told him to do. It just took him five years. So people worry, well, man, I'm backsliding. I'm screwing up. You know what? Wake up tomorrow and get on your game. Because I think God's a big enough God to handle that. He's just. He understands your heart. So, Frank, okay, Genesis 15, verse 1. I have to point this out. I just wouldn't be a good geek pastor for you. Do words generally come in a vision? Genesis 15, verse 1. It says, a word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Words don't come in visions. They come in an audible voice. So he sees somebody or something with his eyeballs and hears the word of the Lord. So it's, who is the word of the Lord? Who's talking? What's the name of this person? So somebody shows up and talks to Abraham, and that's called a Christophany, who's not an angel. It's the word of the Lord, but the word hasn't been made flesh yet, like we see in John 1, right? So Abraham meets Jesus. You can bet that's part of the discussion these Jewish kids have had, and they're referencing Abraham, not Moses, because Abraham predates Moses. They're following the law of Moses, but they're pointing out, your faith started with Abraham, who met the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord became flesh in the form of Jesus. So Abraham's not perfect. He's actually questioning God, and God has to tell him to not be afraid. He fails with, he makes, you know, he goes off and has sex with his midwife or concubine or whatever she was and has Ishmael. So he's screwing up there. He's distracted by Lot. He gets into a bunch of worldly thinking. Then you get to Genesis 15, 5. Then he brought him outside and said, Now look towards heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he says to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Abraham is righteous, but he doesn't have the law of Moses. That's a conundrum for the Jewish people because the only path to righteousness is the law of Moses. But what about Abraham? It was accounted to him for righteousness because he listened to God and he believed him. So we see righteousness first in the Bible by faith and then believing God will do what he says, that's faith. You get that? That's not fuzzy faith. That's the creator of the universe making a promise and we little peon humans saying, I believe you. That's faith. And that's not foolish at all. Genesis 17, if you flip forward a page, Genesis 17, 1, Abraham's now 99 years old. This is thus 30 or 29 years later. So some of you are even less than 29 years old, which means Abraham's been screwing up longer than you were alive. Yet it's accounted to him to faith. Is God just? Yeah. Is he merciful? Heck yeah. Is he faithful to forgive? Yes, of course he is. Our lives are nothing to an eternal God. So he's 99 years old, Genesis 17, 1. The Lord appealed, appeared to Abraham and said, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and I will multiply you exceedingly. So he promises Abraham a nation. He talks about circumcision. Then in verse 18, he gives him an everlasting covenant. This covenant I'm making with you, Abraham, is going to be with your kids forevermore. He's talking about the nation of Israel. Then in 18, chapter 18, verse 11, uh, here we don't get an age. Abraham's just well advanced in age. So somewhere past 99, right? He's just well advanced. Um, he's a, a child is promised to him when he's well advanced, and Abraham and Sarah laugh at him. 
right? And God's like, why are you laughing at me? I'm the God of the universe. If I want you to get pregnant, you'll get pregnant. And Sarah kind of chuckles. Then a passage about Abraham interceding for the Gentiles, Sodom and Gomorrah. Isaac is then born in Genesis chapter 21. God keeps his promises to Abraham. Abraham's faith is growing because every time Abraham does what God says, God is faithful to be there right when he does it. Even over 30 years' time, faith through patience. So there's a lifetime going on here with Abraham, 30-plus years because now he's just old. We don't know how old. Genesis 22, verse 1. Now, And you're like, why is Sean going off on Genesis so much? Because Hebrews referenced Abraham. And they expect we know these things. So we just want to fret refresher on this. Genesis 22, verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Literally translated in the Hebrew, here I am is at your service. I'm your butler, God. Like, what do you want from me? So Abraham, over 30 plus years, has learned this mature behavior of God speaks and I answer. And it's super simple. God says, hey, you there? And Abraham's like, I'm here. That means he has to be listening. He's not so busy, he doesn't have time to listen. Right? But he's just at your service. If we forget to do our daily devotions, I think that the world wants us to be so consumed in our busyness, we never have time to say, at your service, Lord, what do you want? What can I do for you? Genesis 22, verse 2. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. This is the only place, the first time in the, in the Old Testament that it says, your only son. The first time that gets said in the New Testament is in reference to Jesus. It's, it's obviously a typology. It's an odd use of the phrase to say your only son when Abraham also has Ishmael walking around. So God's purposefully making Isaac a typology and ignoring Ishmael when he says that. So Abraham has more, has more than one son. Then he puts him on Moriah. Where's Moriah? It's the exact spot where they built the temple of God that all the Hebrews would be referencing. That's Moriah. So why did they build the temple there? Because this thing happened with Isaac on that spot. Millions of sacrifices since Moses. With Solomon, there was over 100,000 sacrifices in one year on this hill. The same spot Abraham's asked to do this with Isaac. The same spot the Temple Mount still stands to this day. That's the spot. So the temple area is this big, Mount Moriah is a hill between the Kid, Kidron and the Hinnon Valleys, kind of a V-shaped set of valleys. And this hill's a big, large, flat area with the Gihon Spring coming out the bottom. The temple is on that big, huge, flat area, but it's not the highest spot on the Mount Moriah. There's another little mound off the side right outside the Damascus Gate. That little mound is also called Mount Moriah. But if Abraham's climbing up there, he's going to find the highest spot on that mountain. He's going on top of that little knoll that's about as big as this house. Well, maybe a little bigger, like a three-story house. That side of that hill has got rocky escarpments on it that have little caves in them. And when you're at a distance looking at it, it looks like a skull. And so the Jews affectionately, even though it's part of the Mount Moriah area, they call it the Hill of the Skull. Too small to put a temple on it. You're going to put the temple on the big flat part of Mount Moriah. But that spot where Abraham did his thing was probably right outside the Damascus Gate on a hill called Golgotha, which is also the spot Jesus was crucified. Same spot. This is a very big planet to pick the same identical 
spot, and the top of that hill is about as big as this room. But that's the highest spot you can find in the area. If you want to crucify somebody, if you're a Roman, you put them on the spot where everybody can see the crucifixion. You put it on Golgotha. It's where they did it. So you got Moriah as that reference, and the high spot is sitting right there. What happens, notice that in the chapter 22, God calls it a burnt offering. Burnt offerings in Leviticus are for sin. You're going to offer Isaac as a sacrifice for sin. This is the same kind of offering that Jesus gave. He was an offering for sin. Then, okay, this gets really cool, which is why we're doing all this time in Genesis today. And I didn't want to try to take on chapter 7 yet. Genesis 22, verse 3. Read this really carefully and think of the typology. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering, and he rose and went to the place which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw a place afar off. And Abraham said to the, his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we'll come back to you. Likely the young men stayed right where the temple is today, on that big flat area on top of the hill. Then he sees the spot, and he goes climbing up with Isaac. Abraham has to reconcile all this and obey God. God's asking him to give up his only son, which was promised to him after he was well advanced in years. Isaac's, he's doing, and interestingly, he says, we'll come back to you. Abraham is planning to sacrifice Isaac, but promising the young men that they'll both come back. So Abraham's assuming either he'll cheat God, which I don't think is the case, or he's saying, I'm going to sacrifice Isaac and God's going to resurrect him. So I'm going to give my only son and God's going to raise this person up. And it also happens to be on the third day. And they also happen to go up on a donkey. Are you seeing the connections? Then you get to verse 6. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Who carried the wood up the hill? Isaac carries the wood up the hill, just like Jesus. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. Typical of Jesus sending two servants to get a donkey, and then three days later. This is, by the way, the first mention of worship in the Bible, verse 6. Took the word for a burnt offering and laid it on there. Um, so we get this idea of giving everything to God, even your own son. Then seven, Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son, at your service, my son. And then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, literally, God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering in the Hebrew. Literally, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Interestingly, this is part where the typology splits. As Jesus went up the hill, he would have felt the presence of the Father as he went up the hill. But you know when he gets up there, he says, Lord, Lord, why have you forsaken me? I wonder if the human side of Jesus didn't realize that this is a little different than the Abraham situation. Of course, Abraham didn't actually give Isaac up. We know that. God stops him. And then after he stops him, <laughs> well, first Abraham binds Isaac to the wood, just like Jesus was bound to the wood. And then God stops him. And then Genesis 22, verse 13, then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So he's literally wrapped with a, a, th a thorny crown, right? Here's this ram there caught in the thorns of a thicket. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. 
propitiatory atonement. Replaces the person with a symbolic animal. Because God doesn't ask that from humans. He doesn't ask us to kill other humans, ever. 50 years of not getting it right, because Abraham, by this time Isaac's at least 20 years old. The young man there is not the same word for baby, right? So in Sunday school, they make Isaac into a five-year-old. He's not. He's a grown man. He's of age, at least 15, 20 years old. Making Abraham 50 years past the first time he heard from the Lord. Is that patience? Is that faith? He's learned over 50 years to have faith by patience. God tells him to do something, he's just going to do it. So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, as it's said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. All of this is coming to mind by Hebrews when they quote this chapter, chapter 22 of Genesis. So that quotation we see in Hebrews, is this is exactly that spot. It's a future event that the Lord will provide himself a sacrifice on Mount Moriah, crowned in thorns, riding up on a donkey, third day, all of this is going to happen. And it's all a prototype of the crucifixion of Christ. Genesis 22, 15 and 16, then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven. And he said, by myself, I've sworn, says the Lord, because you've done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. That's not quoted in, the, in our chapter, but notice back in Hebrews, it says he swore by himself because there was no greater to swear by. When God has to swear by something, like we can say, I swear by God that I'm going to do this, which we're not supposed to do a lot of that. But God, when he wants to swear by something, can only swear by himself. There's no greater thing to swear by. So in, in Genesis 22:16, by myself I've sworn, says the Lord. So that's referenced in Hebrews when it says that. Here's the promise he got after enduring so long. And in chapter 6, they're not enduring very long. And that's the whole argument of Hebrews. You're not enduring. You said you were going to follow Christ, but now you're falling away doing other stuff. You're supposed to endure like Abraham. Imitate him. He went 50 years and was willing to give his only son. At your service, that attitude. Don't be a slugger. Don't be dull. Listen to what the Lord says and do it when he says to do it. Verse 15, he swore by himself is commentary on this part of Genesis. It's like the writer's inviting them to go back and reread the chapter like we did. God's saying, I am the oath. Literally, I'm the oath that I will fulfill this sacrifice that I'm asking Abraham to do. I'll fulfill it myself. You don't have to do that for me. But thanks, Abraham. Now I have a typology, and we're going to write that down in the book of Genesis. So people can read it and recognize when I've given the gift I promised I'd give. What a reference for the Jewish people, right? This is all in the Bible. It's all laid out. And when they think of it in terms of Jesus, like Hebrews asking them to do it, wow, like this is the promise. This is the oath from Hebrews 6, uh, Hebrews 20, or Genesis 22, 17. Blessing, I will bless you. Multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, the sand is which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. They, they should, they're going to take territory. In your seed, all the nations of earth shall be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. The word seed there in Genesis 22:18 is a singular seed. It's not seeds with an S on it. In your seed, there will be one born of Abraham. And as we go through the Old Testament, that gets narrowed down to it, it, from Israel down to the tribe of Judah, down to the 
inside of Judah down to the house of David. So they, they are looking for that seed from Genesis, uh, from Genesis forward in the Bible. Can we imitate Abraham? Can we be more like him? And, and that's not an issue of screwing up or backsliding, but a long journey that we go to the end. And we're faithful to the end. We learn to trust God and his promises because we rely on him and then we see his blessings over and over and over again. That's how faith gets built. You keep sitting on the chair and realizing it works. And then you do it again and you do it again. At some point, sitting on the chair happens without thinking. At some point, following the Lord and trusting in his promises happens without thinking. We just do it. People say, well, you're just having faith and you can't prove that. Like, yeah, I've sat on it thousands of times. I know it's going to hold me. And, that, and my God is far more reliable than any silly chair. But the eternal covenant and blessing is going to come through a single son of God as a sin offering for us. It's going to happen on the same hill, in the same place, with thorns involved. On the third day, he rose again. All of it's going to happen exactly where Abraham did this. Crazy connections. Then we get back to our chapter. Hebrews 6, verse 15. And so... So that whole 20-minute detour is summed up, and so. <laughs> and so, after he had patiently endured, he, Abraham, obtained the promise. What's the promise? Happens after he's dead and gone. But it happens in the blessing of God that God gives that blessing immediately after his faithfulness, at every step. We imitate that faith. We inherit that blessing, and it's a very old blessing. And we get to inherit that here in the basement of a house. It's insane. If Abraham had to wait 50 years and, and his willingness to wait was always at your service, here I am, Lord, we can do the same. We can imitate that. God gave everything swearing the utmost to us and these Jews are tempted to go back to Judaism. Man, that makes no sense. For Verse 16, for men indeed swear by the greater and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God determining to show us more abundantly to the heirs of the promise that immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Do we have assurance of the hope of salvation? Heck yes. Like it's, it's immutable. The writer zooms in on that oath that God made. By myself, I've sworn, says the Lord. That he fulfilled it. He came himself, fulfilled the promise. And, and verse 16, that oath should end when, when between Jewish people, they made an oath, the debate was over. The contract was sealed. Because in, in Levitical law, to make that oath, you, you keep it or it's your own soul that's endangered when you break it. So when they would swear an oath, it was over and done. Verse 16, it ended all dispute. The same is true with God. It ends all dispute that someone might lose the hope of salvation. You can't. It ends the dispute because God promised it. And God, not only can God not lie, here's why he can't lie, because when he says something, it's true. He, he speaks reality. When he says, let there be light, there is light, even though there may not have been light before he said it. He can't lie because all of creation changes at a word when he speaks it. So <laughs> thus God determines to show more abundantly the heirs of the promise. He's trying to show us that he's made us a promise. 
So where, where we start with a difficult, challenging verse 6, we end here. And people miss that when they confuse verse 6 and take it out of context and make it into a you-can-lose-your-salvation verse. The whole point of this is that if you're faithful in patience, you can't lose that. It's a promise that God's made and he's going to keep. So can you lose your salvation? That's the wrong question. God's promise of salvation has been made. It's not lost. And we can't lose it. We can just fail to accept it. We can fail to take it. So there's, here's a question. Can I lose my keys? Absolutely. Have the keys disappeared? No. They're still there. So can I lose my pen? Absolutely. Praise God, I can't lose salvation because it's not mine to lose. It's God's to give. So if I'm faithfully following the Lord Jesus Christ every day of my life, there's nothing that can part me from the love of God. Absolutely nothing. Immutably, immovable God. It says God's immutable in the Greek. That means fixed, unchangeable, not transposed. I thought that was an interesting way to define it. God's promised and he's made it by an oath. Those are the two immutable things. Not only did he promise it, he made an oath around it. Salvation is waiting. It's impossible for God not to lie, it says. There's a strong consolation. In the Greek, that's a calling or a summons. So it's like when a mother calls her children close when they're upset. You bring them in and you tuck them in. It's not just a, a consolation like that, but a strong consolation. Get over here and let me give you comfort. Relax. You have an everlasting covenant that goes beyond your circumstance and beyond your feelings. You can't be separated from God. If you want God, he's there. The only thing that can separate you from God is you by ignoring him. So you flee to him for refuge. That's a reference to Numbers 35, the cities of refuge. The church is the fulfillment of a city of refuge. It is the rest of God. It's the one day of the week we can relax. It's the one day of the week we can even be a little weird and everybody around us will put up with it because we're a church. We love to accept weird people, right? We partake in that and we get it all the time. In fact, the early believers met every night of the week because they loved their refuge and they needed it. They had a lot more persecution than we do. Fleeing to a church for refuge, the cities of refuge, I won't go back and do a whole Bible study on that, but they were meant to be close by. You could run to them with your feet. They were near and they were the only hope for, believe, for people that were guilty that wanted salvation. You, you would run to them, you would partake of food, you would live within their walls, um, and you had to do it with the high priest. As, as long as the high priest stayed alive, that city of refuge would keep you. And it was for people that were accused of things that were not going to be punished for them. You lay hold of the hope set before you. What do you grab onto? That God has made a place of rest He's promised it. He's blessed us with us. We lay hold of the hope. I hope God's going to keep his promises. But it's not a weak hope. It's not like, I hope someday I have a hot tub. <laughs> that doesn't work anymore. <laughs> for those of you that have been around for a while, I use that reference a lot, but the people left their hot tub behind upstairs. So, like, we have a hot tub now. <laughs> How does that happen? That'd be a sign, not a wonder. Um, but that's kind of cool, isn't it? All right. So we lay hold of that hope that God keeps his promises, but it's, it's not a fluffy hope. It really isn't. It's a hope that's secured and tight. 
I hope this floor will hold me while I walk on it, right? And the foundations of the earth aren't even as solid as the foundations of God's promises. We wait on our high priest, who's also Jesus. We trust that the high priest will have a lamb to substitute for us for his sins, that, that who is also Jesus. We hope dearly that God will keep his promise in that eternal covenant. Um, and, and we hope that because Jesus promised it himself by himself, giving himself as a sacrifice. Hebrews 9, 28, we're going to come back. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for our salvation. So we have hope in salvation with a strong consolation and a refuge of hope. That hope is a church body partaking in the body of Christ where we get to renew that hope every week by reading his word. It's so gracious that God gave us that system. It's so easy. We don't dread God's coming. We look forward to it. You ever meet an immature believer where they're just terrified of God's return? Armageddon and terror and scares and all that. And it's like, you know, as Christians, we're not, we don't have much to fear from that. Like, it's when dad comes home and you've spilled all the paint on the carpet, you're terrified, <laughs> right? But when dad comes home and you spill paint on the carpet and you know that that carpet's going to get removed anyways and dad doesn't really care, maybe dad gave you the paint bucket and said, have fun. Then you're not so scared of dad coming home anymore. That's how we should be with God coming back. We, that should be our hope. I can't wait for the Lord to return because I'm a monarchist not a Republican or Democrat. Like, I want God to reign on the throne. I want it to be a monarchy. Finally, the hope of that blessing is now in the present tense. Verse 19 of Hebrews. This hope we have as an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast, in which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. You, you hear all those words, sure, steadfast, forever, entered in, has become. All of those things are words to give us security in our faith. We're rock solid. And it's laced through there. Can this ever be moved? Not with an anchor, right? The whole point of an anchor was to keep a boat secure, stable, and firm, no matter what, how bad the storm was. If you can hold the bottom of the boat down, the waves can do whatever they want. You're going to come back to center. And that's what Christians have. We have a hope that's an anchor for our soul. No matter what wave comes in our life, we know we're going to come back to center because the Lord will get us there. It's never that bad. Which enters. This was a reference to the Holy of Holies being behind the veil, that reference right there. In the temple, there would be the courtyard where everybody could be, then there was the, the area of the holies where the Jewish people could be, Jewish men could be, and then there was the holy of holies. The only one that could go in there was the high priest. And behind the veil, there was a giant curtain. So even when the high priest was tending to the, the lampstand and the bread and stuff, they didn't actually see the Ark of the Covenant because that was behind a huge, super thick veil that was there. Not a lacy veil, but a leather and uh, quilted veil kind of thing. Behind the veil was the Shekinah glory of God. That's the presence. That's why the presence has a capital P, or it should in your translation. That's another word for God. Uh, so the presence would be a way that you could say the Holy Spirit, but it's the presence. Not, it's not just a presence. It's a proper noun, in other words. That's how I should say that. So when we place our trust in God, 
<laughs> not being lukewarm and trusting in dead works or, or doing whatever you want in life. But when we trust in God and live accordingly, um, Jesus was a forerunner that entered for us. A forerunner is somebody who goes in front of or before an entourage of people coming into town. Your forerunner would announce that the ambassador, the king, was coming to town. So if Jesus is our forerunner, think of like how humble that is first. But second, the whole point of a forerunner is that other people are going to go in too. So if the only one that goes in behind the veil is the high priest and Jesus is the high priest, but Jesus is just a forerunner, it means we get to go into the presence of God too. Why would I stay a Jew when I can go to church every week and feel the presence of God? Right? And I don't know if you all felt it, but we were halfway through a song and part of the body showed up in the middle of the song and you could feel the presence change. That's what the body does. The Holy Spirit works in and among us all the time and we miss each other when we're gone. So it implies that the forerunner goes in, but we run in right after Jesus. We follow his path. He goes in behind the veil. We go in behind the veil. And that's part of our assurance is that we feel the presence of God. That's why we do worship. It's why we read the Word of God. It's why we eat together. We feel that peace every Sunday. And we just wake up and are like, man, I'm ready for the week. I'm ready to go. So we have the promise of God's Word in deed and in practice. So we have it written in the Word. That's a strong consolation. We can read about Abraham. Huge consolation to us. But we also have the deed. It's a refuge of peace that when we go into Jesus who died for our sins and he rose for the dead as a propitiation for our sins, we believe that and we can feel it. New believers often say, I just felt a weight lifted. That's a second assurance of salvation because the Holy Spirit's still working and you can feel that happening. And then you get the practice of it. We have this inexplicable hope that's sure and steadfast. We go out and do the ministry of God, we feel better. So it's not just a passive receiving or noticing the Holy Spirit. We can go out and engage in that process and feel the Holy Spirit work through us into other people. Man, I was so blessed by what you did. And you're like, I just did it because I was obeying the Lord. I'm glad you're blessed because now I know the Holy Spirit's working. I love that. It's one of my favorite parts about teaching. So if you don't trust the promise that God made to Abraham is fulfilled in Jesus, you don't have a promise. It's the same thing. There's no other fulfillment of that promise. If you don't trust that Jesus rose from the dead for your sins, that, that disregards everything Abraham did. That, that whole typology is just irrelevant. You think there's hope for redemption in Judaism without understanding that God just fulfilled all of Judaism? That's the argument of Hebrews, talking to Jews. If you, don't, if you continue to go back to synagogue, you've got a major problem because you're denying what God just did. Jesus rose from the dead. Nobody denied that God did that. They might try to come up with reasons why they still don't have to follow God. But at this point in history, the resurrection was really unquestioned. You'd think it would be more questioned, but it wasn't because it was public. Public death, public resurrection. If you don't have the peace of Jesus, then you're not experiencing the refuge of it. If you're not in a body of believers that's studying the word together and fellowshipping together, you're not partaking in the body. So why would you think the Holy Spirit's active? It's easier to doubt the Holy Spirit when you never experience it. That's our steadfast hope. It's kind of a bummer if you're still going to synagogue because the Shekinah glory is not there. It's imbibing in the, in the worship of the saints. You end up with nothing. So it's impossible to repent, verses 4 and 5, if you don't believe in what just happened and change your life accordingly. 
So if you have to go another 50 years to hear that voice, we'll be patient. Maybe you come to church some weeks and you don't feel it. It's just not there. Part of it might be that you don't know the people in the body, so you're not experiencing that joy and blessing of having people minister to you. But you can go 50 years and not hear that voice, and a believer that's experienced it once or twice, I will go 50 years and a dry spell. That's what Abraham and God did, so I can imitate that. I don't have to hear from God every day. If God intervenes in my life once, twice, 50, 100, 1,000 times, and then he wants to do a dry spell, I can be patient because I still have my faith from all those experiences I had. I can keep moving forward. So no, <laughs> baby faither, I'm not interested in going back to Tabernacle. No, I'm not interested in joining your fantasy football league. No, I really don't care who's coming in concert. Right? I'm not going to bite on those things. Literally, there's a billboard on the highway that says, you got to be there. And it's a Minnesota wild thing. I'm like, that should be a church campaign. You've got to be there to know what it is. But the world makes these imitation things that are these emotional highs that go away as soon as you pay your money and it's done. I'm not interested. I don't want your Mishnah. I don't want your codes. I don't want your kosher foods. I don't want your Sabbath restrictions. That stuff is a prison. It's the burden that Isaac carried up the hill. And that burden got left at Calvary with Jesus Christ. I don't have to go back to synagogue. And I'm not interested. No, if I want to wear a ball cap when it's cold, when I'm teaching the word, I'm going to wear a ball cap because God doesn't care about that. I got talked to once because I taught and I didn't have a suit and tie on. I, I honor my God and I respect my God. I don't think he cares if I'm wearing a tie. I'm not going to go back to those rules. It's dead. Here's where I'm grateful. Everything was a preparation for God's promise over 5,000 years that I get to enjoy. I'm so grateful for that. and God knows my heart. I hope you're grateful for that too. There's no going back. I'm going to imitate my shepherd for the rest of my life. I'm not returning ever. I don't care how long it takes. I might go to my deathbed and the Lord hasn't returned, and that's a bummer because I hope he comes back tomorrow. Numbers 1 or 10.30, and he answered, no, I will not go. I'm going back to my own land and my own people. Why would, why would Moses ever say that to God? Because he didn't have a background with God. He didn't have a track record with God. It's easy to fall away when you don't have a track record with God. You get Isaiah. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I've set my face like flint and I know I will not be put to shame. How do you know you won't be put to shame? You can't prove that. That's, faith. That's a step of faith. But the reason he gives is because the Lord helps me. I've seen the Lord in my life every single day. Because he helps me, I know he will continue to help me. It's, that's, that's as rock solid as you get in this life when it comes to predicting the future. Or how about this? I'm going to imitate the diligent, godly men that I know in my life. I'm going to imitate the pastors I know, brothers in the faith that I know, sisters that I respect. I'm going to imitate every mature believer I get, and I'm going to walk that way because if they're experiencing the Holy Spirit, I know I'll get there someday too if I just imitate their lifestyle. And I guarantee their lifestyle has daily devotions, worship without strings attached, food and fellowship with other saints, and prayer time where we're talking to our Lord without ceasing. So God made it really easy to live as he asked us to. Even Paul, Paul was an imitator, right? 
For I resolved, this is 1 Corinthians 2.2, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I'm going to deny everything else in the world but Jesus Christ and Christ crucified. Now, some believers take that really literally and they never talk about anything else, you know, but I, okay, if that's the way you want to lean, you're just imitating Paul. Do that for a season and go there. We end this chapter with the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Guess where we're going with chapter 7? We're coming right back to that concept that was introduced back in chapter 5. Right? This, This is a thick, meaty subject for believers, and I can't get to the thick, meaty subject unless we're done with our ABCs and we've learned our kindergarten faith stuff, chapter 5 and chapter 6. But I know you're not those people, middle of chapter 6. I know you're ready to talk about meaty subjects because you've experienced the Holy Spirit in church. You've been partakers of the presence of God. You have assurance of salvation. Therefore, chapter 7, we're going to talk about Melchizedek because this is cool stuff. And we're going to dig into this. Lisa gave me a whole book on Melchizedek. I'm trying to fly through it by the end of the week. We're back to where we left off with Hebrews chapter 5, verse 6. And we're given these two Old Testament references Um, with Melchizedek, and we're going to pick those back up. And then we're going to go into a full study of Melchizedek in chapter 7. If you don't know who Melchizedek is, as a mature believer, you should know. And it's a conversation topic you could have. It'll make you much better at evangelizing with Jewish people, at the very least. At the best, it's going to give you a rock-solid faith. You're going to absolutely know how Jesus connects the dots for our salvation and our walk in the faith. So it's good stuff. We'll do that next week. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you. We thank you for your blessings. We thank you for the way you teach us. And Lord, when we hit a message like the assurance of hope uh, that we have and that we have our hope in you, Lord, there may be somebody that, that needs to hear that in a special way. So Lord, I just pray that they don't deny your Holy Spirit. If that's plucking at their heartstrings, they actually do something about it. They become imitators. They become diligent. They start grabbing onto their life and maturing their faith so that they can move forward. Uh, They can experience the blessing and the hope. Lord, I just pray that for everybody in this room. I want everybody, Lord, to experience the hope you've given to me, Um, the blessings you've given to me, Lord, the things you've given. Lord, I pray that for everybody in this room. We pray that together. Lord, help us minister one to another because you notice those things. That's not invisible to you. And you see how we minister within the church and you see how we evangelize outside the church. Lord, help us to practice those things with diligence, to do it every day, to go like we're going to run a race and to be athletes and we practice for our spiritual race. We do it because we want to win the prize. Uh, Lord, we want to do everything we can for you. Lord, if you call on us, help us to honestly and with all sincerity say, here I am, I'm ready to go. And that nothing in this world matters more than doing what you've called us to do in that moment. So Lord, help us to be a blessing to each other and help and accept that as a humble sacrifice to you, Lord, that we give our lives to you, give it wholeheartedly. Thank you, Lord, for your blessings. Bless this food we're about to eat. May you bless the feast and the conversation and the fellowship. Thank you, Lord, for this new place to meet. In Jesus' name, amen.
If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.